When I was in grade five, I was, uh, my, my dad's a his, history professor, uh, specifically the Reformation time period. So he had a sabbatical year when I was in grade five, and we spent that year in Germany. I knew no German, and I was sent off to the local German school, which was actually for grade five to 12. So there I am, this grade five kid, not a word of German, and, uh, and just in there for the year. That was my grade five year. I, the therapy's expensive, but it's working. So, and so what, 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 what happened there is that you, I also had grade five German kids who knew grade five level English. And so they would be like, hello, Matthew, how are you today? And I would be like, bad and just whatever. And it just, it wasn't very useful. Partway through the year, it just kind of clicked. I had sat there for so long, listened to German, uh, seen it written out, read it, and it just started to click. And I, I, being the youngest in my family, was the quickest to become fluent in German. Don't try and speak German to me in the foyer. It's gone all. I've lost it progressively every year since I was 10 years old, but uh, that was my experience. Over the next six weeks, we are going to learn a new language together. It's a biblical language, actually, and it's not Greek, it's not Hebrew, it's not Aramaic, it's the language of lament. This is a biblical language. Look at the Psalms, for example. There are 150 Psalms, and over a third of them are laments. We'll, sh we'll show you. There are a number of corporate laments, 16 to be exact, and roughly 42 individual laments in the Psalms. Beyond that, um, the, the Old Testament itself has a number of other laments, including they bo the book of Lamentations, five chapters worth of laments, which are what we're going to spend our next five weeks in. The New Testament, though, also has lament, much of it being Jesus in his ministry, including on the cross, quoting psalms of lament. But we also see it in Acts 8 where uh, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, has been killed. And we see in Acts 8, verse 2, it says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Essentially, lament asks, Where are you, God? And why is this happening? I think we get uncomfortable in the church sometimes. I don't know if this is your experience, but many in the church struggle to pray like that to God. Where are you? Why this? And so sometimes that's void of our communication with God. It doesn't exist in our communication with him. But Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, is helpful when he says, and I think he's right, we think laments are disrespectful. He goes on to say, but God says the opposite. We live in a deeply broken world. All we need to do is look around to know that that's true. Lamenting shows you are engaged with God in a vibrant, living faith. Somewhat counterintuitive, but actually be, to be a Christian who laments, who observes the world and turns that into questioning prayer is actually a sign of a living vibrant faith. So what is a lament prayer? Essentially, lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Actually, at fall kickoff, I preached a sermon called Learning to Lament. 
And in it, I unpacked really the four elements of biblical lament. I'm just going to state them here, but you can go back and listen to that if you want to hear more on what each is really saying. But just to review, here are the four elements of biblical lament. First, turn to God for help. This is actually beginning to speak to God with something that concerns you. It's to pray to God is to turn to God. So we start uh, with turning to God for help. Second, we are to bring our complaints to God. This is the second element of biblical lament. Bring your complaint to God. You're not only speaking to him, you're actually bringing something that's rattling you, is unsettled in you, that you have questions about and you can't get over it. Third, it's to ask boldly for help by calling on God to act. It's, 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 it's prayer that asks the, the big questions on your heart to God and then says, will you work? Will you move? Will you answer? Will you provide? And then the fourth element is to choose to trust and put your confidence in God. I'm going to show you that pattern a few times over here. Essentially, four elements of biblical lament, turn, complain, ask, and trust. I'm just going to read through three Psalms rather quickly. Here's Psalm 13. Look at the pattern. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has bount, dealt bountifully with me. How long will you forget me forever? I will remember what you have done. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's probably most famous because Jesus prayed this from the cross. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. It's that remembering of, you have actually been faithful with generations before. I can trust you now in this, even while questioning. Psalm 77, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I will seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wavering, without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Salah, which really means to pause and reflect and also to praise. Verse four, you hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? 
Salah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Right? I will remember. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people. The children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. Biblical lament. Those are in the Bible. Those questions, that pain, bringing the complicated and unresolved to the Lord. We see example after example after example. So why lament? I'm going to use a list of six reasons that I got from Mark Vrogop in his book, uh, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. <clears throat> the first is, the first reason to lament is because it is a language for loss. Historically, lament has been the language of hurting Christians. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, why all this emphasis on hard times, on hard things? And, and, and I praise God that, that maybe none of this is resonating this morning. That, that, that's a blessing. I'm glad that maybe you don't feel like you even need the language of lament right now. But many of you do. And those of you who don't presently need it will. Historically, lament has been the language of hurting Christians. I already showed you the four elements of biblical lament, and biblical lament provides vocabulary to us for talking to God through the pain. Second, it is the solution for silence. Here's a very real danger for Christians. You can either be too afraid to talk to God honestly, to talk honestly to God about doubts and pain and hardship, or too angry and refuse to talk to God about those things. Maybe some of you have stopped talking to God about certain things. You, you worry about being irreverent or have some shame or feel hurt that your prayers seem to have fallen on deaf ears. Whatever the reason, lament is a way to start talking to God again or to continue to talk to him even when it's messy, even in the pain. Third, it is a category for complaints. Like, I love, I love that Psalm 13 starts with, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I have sorrow in my heart all the day? Like, that's in the Bible. God is showing us that we can bring our hurt and our questions to God and he can handle it. Actually, to know that expressing our grief to God is biblical is really eye-opening and freeing. For many of us. Fourth, it is a framework for feelings. Now, biblical lament keeps us from the trap of self-centeredness and from spewing sinful accusations at God. Lament validates us expressing our pain while providing a framework for it. Fifth, it is a process for our pain. Lament invites us on a process of turning to God laying out our complaints, asking for help, and choosing to trust. And by embracing that process laid out for us in the Bible, choosing to lament through the pain, actually, and yes, counterintuitively, leads us to deeper faith, more resolve, and greater hope in God. Six, it is a way to worship. 
I've just got to let you know, sometimes in the church, our definition of worship is far too small. Some of you might be under the impression that we stopped worshiping when the band left the stage. Now you're listening to a guy talk about the Bible, and then we're going to worship some more when we do one more song, and then we're just going to go and mingle with people. No, 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 no. (laughs) A biblical view of worship is that when you walked in the doors and were intentional about building another brother or sister in Christ up in the faith, that was worship. That when we prayed together, it was worship. When we sang together, it's worship. To sit under the preaching of the word is for us to worship. For us to go out from here and serve our community is to worship. In the same way, right, if our concept of worship of God only means an upbeat, happy demeanor, we just, we need to redefine what worship is. I personally would be hard-pressed to find something more faith-enriching than watching someone cling to Jesus in the midst of hard things. And that, to me, is one of the most vivid, beautiful pictures of worship you could see. You don't have to just muster a bunch of happy feelings to God for it to be worship and praise. The messiness and the brokenness of life, but coming to God in the midst of it, is worship and praise. Grief-filled prayers of pain while seeking God are among the deepest expressions of Christ-exalting worship there is. So there's hope and lament, even when the situation doesn't resolve itself quickly. In in that regard, I don't look at lament as some somber exercise, some depressing thing, but actually hope-filled. I also want to do a, a little bit of defining terms here. I think despair is actually the opposite of lament. We might lump them together sometimes, like lament is a despairing kind of language. I I don't agree. Despair is the opposite of lament. Silent despair is worse than lament. Despair is the ultimate manifestation of disbelief. It's where you deny that God is even listening anymore, so you've stopped praying. And I know that's probably where some of you are this morning. Some of you are so wounded, so angry, so hurt, so frustrated that you don't talk to God about particular things anymore, or you don't even talk to God at all anymore. Right? My life hasn't gone like I expected. You didn't deliver. I'm not talking to you about my loved one who doesn't know Jesus anymore. I'm not talking to you about my constant failure in an area of sin anymore. I'm not talking to you about my spouse anymore. I'm not talking to you about my son, my daughter anymore. I'm not talking to you about that pregnancy anymore. I'm not talking to you about that loss anymore. I'm not talking to you about my diagnosis anymore. I'm not talking to you about these circumstances anymore. If that's you this morning... You are living in the land of lament. Lament land. That sounds like a really sad theme park. (laughs) Lament land. But perhaps you're living there. And the language of lament is a gift to you. The language of lament is prayer through pain that keeps us from pretending all is okay. And it keeps us from despair. You probably noticed or sat on uh, a lament card uh, on your chair, and I'd like you to grab that. That's for you. And on the back, it says something along the lines of putting language to my lament, and there's a space there. I'm not, I'm not going to ask you this morning to write down the four elements of biblical lament. I'm, I'm simply asking that you would write down that thing 
that is your lament, has been your lament. Uh, back in at, at Advent, um, we opened up Luke chapter 1, and we saw that there was this couple, Elizabeth and Zechariah. And uh, what, we saw something interesting there that it says that they were righteous and they were childless. And, and they would have wondered their entire lives, if we're righteous, why are we childless? Or are we even righteous since we're childless? And then an angel comes to Zechariah and says, I've heard your prayer. What prayer? The prayer that they had prayed for decades through tears. And God was saying, I always heard it. And I always have had plans around it. And you need to know that. So maybe you just know right now, right away, oh, I know my prayer through tears. I know the prayer I've been praying for decades. And I'd invite you to write it down. Um, maybe it's something that you actually haven't quite put language to. You've tried to avoid. It hasn't been a part of your prayer life. It hasn't been something you've brought to God. There's some sort of ache, and maybe you haven't put language to that yet. I just invite you to do that this morning and to write it down. I'm going to uh, give you an, a little opportunity to do that here. The reason I'd ask you to do this is, is, is for, well, there's multiple reasons. One, um, I think it'll help me help us be better pastors here. We want to walk with you through, through the things that you're, you're really facing. And so it'll just be a really helpful window in to some of the things that we might not be aware of that you're walking through these days. Um, our pastors are going to get together and some of our staff on Tuesday, and we're just going to pray over these lament cards. And so um, there's boxes at the back of the rooms, around the rooms, and we just invite you to place it in there on your way out this morning. You know, I've, 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 I've sat in prayer circles with enough of you to know that, that a lot of us, when we come before God, we, we, tend, to same, we, we tend to pray the same old prayers, the same old way. And, and I, what I'm inviting you into this morning is an opportunity to really state that aching prayer, that hurt, that pain that you may even feel angry at God at, or you might feel hopeless about. I'm a preacher. I could talk and talk and talk, but I'm going to stop talking for about a minute and, and just allow you to kind of quiet your own heart and ask God what that might be if it's not uh, coming to your knowledge swiftly, and then we'll pick up. Feel free over the course of the, the rest of the morning to, to try and articulate that.
You can just state it, what it is, whatever. You throw that on there, just invite you to do that. If you have to shield it from the person beside you, from your spouse, feel free. Do what you got to do. What I've tried to do is just lay uh, a, a little bit of ground here in terms of what lament is and um, give us a window into personal lament. And we're going to take a shift here now and we're going to talk a little bit more with our remaining time about corporate lament. Okay? I'm going to start by telling you about soul music, something I know so much about, soul music. Uh, soul music began largely as a genre focusing on ballads. The pioneers of soul were crooners, bellowing out sultry lyrics for lovers. Marvin Gaye was perhaps one of the most famous soul singers of his era. Gaye, who grew up in a pastor's home, those pastor's kids, man, in the Deanwood neighborhood of Washington, D.C., became the poster boy of smooth, sultry, romantic sound with hits like How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You, I Heard It Through the Grapevine, and with Tammy Terrell, Ain't No Mountain High Enough, and You're All I Need to Get By. However, by the 60s, many artists and genres of music became more concerned with the political issues and causes of the day, including Marvin Gaye. He released a string of chart-topping hits like his 1971 tune, What's Going On, Inner City Blues, Makes Me Wanna Holla, and Mercy, Mercy Me. What's Going On and Mercy, Mercy Me captured the anguished cry of a disenchanted and disenfranchised generation. The songs were urban laments, Longing for an almost mythic day when things like hunger and war would cease to exist. In other ways, the songs gave voice to a question, a prayer really, that almost irrepressibly escapes one's lips amidst life's turmoil. Gay seems to be crying out with his generation for mercy. The cry for mercy is as old as humanity's fall in the garden. It's been uttered whispered and yelled in every generation among every people since, since sin entered the world. When we reach those limits, something in us looks for mercy. What soul music and so many genres of music have done, I try to tap into, try to put poetry to, music to make sense of the world that they observe and the brokenness of it and to fashion it into some sort of corporate lament, this cry for mercy. So the series we are embarking on is called The Language of Lament. And I want us to quickly look at 2 Chronicles 36 this morning because it sets the table, sets the stage for our study of the book of Lamentations. It's like a third of the way into the Bible. There's First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, then First and Second Chronicles. We're in Second Chronicles 36. It really sets the stage for our study of the Book of Lamentations. Behind this book is the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and nation of Israel after after the golden years in Israel's history, which were really during the reigns of King David and then his son King Solomon. The nation was then divided into two kingdoms, Israel, the northern kingdom, 10 tribes, and Judah, the southern kingdom, two tribes. The northern tribes were by and large generally more ungodly, and as a result, the Assyrians overthrew them in 722 BC and took them into captivity. This should have served as a warning to Judah, the southern tribes, but it didn't. 
Judah experienced the same kind of divine discipline. And we'll see it mapped out here because five kings are mentioned in 2 Chronicles 36, and we see the demise of a nation by looking at them. First, we see Josiah. He's the first king that's named in verse 1 of chapter 36. Josiah was the last godly king in Israel's history. There was great reform and spiritual vitality in the nation under his leadership. But after his death, things unraveled quickly. They unraveled politically and they unraveled morally. So much so that less than 30 years after Josiah's death, the nation was gone. At this time in the ancient Near East, Assyria was the superpower, but Babylon was coming on the scene and actually overthrew Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, in 612 BC, and then overthrew all of Assyria by 609 BC. During all of this, little Judah is caught in the middle. The next king, the next king after Josiah is Jehoahaz, and he reigned for three months before being deposed by Egypt. Verse 5 says this, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And then it says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Now, a little bit of background. Jeremiah 25 and 26 tells us that Jehoiakim led God's people into idolatry, he refused to listen to God's word, and he even persecuted the prophets. And so as a result, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, comes and takes Judah, binding Jehoiakim in chains and taking him into captivity in Babylon, along with some other citizens. Some you may have heard of before, Daniel, the prophet, we see his book in the Bible, and his three friends with the coolest names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were uh, dragged back to Babylon at this time, as well as some vessels from the temple. Now let's pick it up in verse 9. Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, sorry, was 18 years old when he became king. That's a recipe for disaster. And he reigned three months and 10 days in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, 2 Kings 24 tells us that Babylon came through again, set up a siege at this point. Jehoiakim abdicated the throne, and upon his surrender, the Babylonians raided the temple and palace and carried off all of the officials, the mighty men of valor, and all of the craftsmen. In other words, Babylon completely wiped out the leadership and infrastructure of their nation. At this point is when Ezekiel the prophet was part of the deportation. So all that's left at this point is a practically incapacitated nation. We pick it up in verse 11, where it says Zedekiah, because all the good king names that started with a J were used. So now Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Now you would think that with such a pattern before him, that he would seek to lead like David and Solomon or Josiah, but instead we see, verse 12 tells us, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, his God, and actually outdid his predecessors in evil. So God sends the Babylonians one more time. I'm going to keep reading, uh, picking up in verse 12. So he did, this is, this is what Zedekiah did. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah, the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He rejected God's word. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by God. 
In addition, he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. But note this, all the officers of the priests and all the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. Verse 15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was, and these are scary words, no remedy. It has shadows of precisely what God said of himself to Moses, when he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 36, where he declared the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sin. I mean, that's exactly what we think of when we think of God, right? Merciful, gracious, abounding in love and faithfulness. But the verse goes on to say, but who will by no means clear the guilty? See, what the Bible makes clear over and over again, we see it in this story in 2 Chronicles and we see it in Exodus. We see it all over the scriptures. Over and over again is that this loving God doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. And I think this is a, a healthy dose of what the church needs to remember. We aren't just a bunch of relatively good people and the gospel's pretty sweet. Uh, we are deceitful people, we are wicked people, our hearts are crooked, and we desperately need grace. We are desperate for the good news of the gospel. And it's only when we see that that's us apart from Christ that now the gospel isn't just something that's kind of neat, kind of sweet, but life, salvation, exactly what I need See, it wasn't just the kings. We see this in the story. It wasn't just the kings who weren't humble, who were stiff-necked and hard-hearted towards God. It was all the officials. It was all the priests, and it was all the people. Verse 17, therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. Note this. The Chaldeans don't only come. What the scriptures tell us is they are sent by God as a means of judgment on God's people. So the Chaldeans come, and they killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or age. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king and of his princes. All these he brought to Babylon and they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. In other words, all the riches Solomon had placed in the temple, the place that God had gladly dwelled among his people, burned. The city laid waste. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Precisely what Jeremiah for years had been warning them about came to fruition because they would not heed God's word and God's warnings. The destruction of Judah was complete. The city of David that was at times and was meant to be a light to the nations was decimated and burned. The chosen people of God are now either dead, displaced, or destitute. The rebellion of God's people brought this upon them. So, 
All that to say, it's the smoldering ruins of Jerusalem that set the stage for the book of Lamentations. We're going to pick it up next week from where 2 Chronicles 36 ends. Can I, can I bring this to our moment a little bit? How do we, good, because I'm going to, how do we deal with tragedy on a grand scale? Like how do we interpret that? What do we do with that? What do we do with tragedy in the world? What do we do with virus, right, spanning the globe? What do we, what do, we do with evils, atrocities that we watch on the news? Like how do we deal with that? What are we supposed to think about that? Lamentation shows us it's there in, all, in the midst of all the destruction, in the midst of all the darkness, but it's never, it, it, Lamentations isn't sinful. It, it's raw, but it, it, it's not without hope. In fact, you're going to come to discover that the book of Lamentations is embedded with hope. It will show us how to corporately lament, how to look at the devastation in the world, the hard, the confusing, the sad, and the gut-wrenching, and interpret all of those things as Christians. I want us to recapture the lifeline, the rich, beautiful, biblical language of lament. So that when the bottom falls out in your life or in the lives of loved ones, your faith can hold up under it. I also want us to recapture the biblical language of corporate lament. It's the same song, not personal lament, corporate lament is the same song, it's just a different harmony line. Now, to, to, to be able to do this as Christians, to understand, look at the world and, and make sense of it all, really, it, it forces us to be interpreters, to know two languages at the same time. Has anyone ever here ever had to speak through an interpreter? Ever had that experience of speaking through an interpreter? Has anyone been the interpreter before? Been the interpreter? I've been the interpreter before. I was in preschool. This is a true story. It was in preschool, and I had this little friend, my, my, my only friend when I was four, I think. His name was Ryan. He was my best friend. We hung out all the time, and I was unaware, but he, he was slower at, at speaking. His speech was lower than most other four-year-olds, and he had a speech impediment, which made him, I didn't notice, but to others, made him very difficult to understand. So we were in preschool together, and the preschool teachers just literally, they could not make sense of what Ryan was ever saying but they knew that I always knew what Ryan was saying. So they'd, they'd turn to me and be like, Matthew, what's Ryan saying? And I would just tell them what Ryan just said. You know, I was an interpreter. I, understand, I understood English and I understood Ryan. <laughs> and what corporate lament does is it interprets two things at the same time, the realities of sin and the hope of the gospel. That's where the language of lament comes in. We lament, we cry out to God with pain and hope when we face difficulty. And we corporately lament. We cry out to God as we watch the news, observe tragedy, and ache over the fallen human condition. We live in, in such an individualistic society and we all tend towards viewing the world through the lens of how it affects me. What, what corporate lament um, kind of lifts our gaze to do is just interpret things on a global scale and say, how can I think about the realities of these sins that are epidemic in the universe 
and the hope that there is in Jesus Christ. See, when we lament the brokenness in the world around us, it shines a light on the beautiful reality of what the gospel has done for us. So that therefore, Christians can enter the rubble of life and lead in lament because we know the rest of the story. We can open our hearts, our voices, and homes to people who desperately want restoration but have no idea where to find it. Because lament leads to Jesus. Jesus came to address, this is what we know, Jesus came to address the problem of sin in the universe and in every human heart. Sin is a problem, a really big, pervasive, insidious problem, but not one without a solution. The answer to the problem of sin has a name, and his name is Jesus. As Jesus hung on the cross, bearing our sin and shame, he cried a lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he wasn't forsaken forever. Tragedy gave way to triumph when Jesus rose victorious over the grave. But lament is the voice in between. Vocalizing the pain of the moment while believing that help is coming. And the pain of the moment may be weeks, it may be years, but it won't be forever. Believing that in the future when we are with God forever, there will be no more Lament. Lament vocalizes, vocalizes a desire for justice that is not yet fulfilled. Um, every Sunday during Lent and during the Language of Lament series, we are going to rehearse corporate lament together. So this is what we'll do. Jason, I'm going to start with you. And just say out your corporate lament. And then Alex, will just jump to you. And we'll just kind of weave our way. Just kidding. I'm totally kidding. The exit doors are just getting flooded. Just, I'm out. I'm out. I tried church again. I'm out again. It's done. It's over. No, we're not going to do that. But every Sunday, we are going to rehearse corporate lament together. Things that we think as we look across the world, things that, that, that the church should really be mourning over. Uh, things that we can actually resonate around and say, yeah, this brokenness is, is very difficult. But turn to God with trust nonetheless. We will lament together over things that are wrong with the world. And I, I think it's a really good season for this practice because the road to the cross had some hard days. But we also know that Easter's coming, so we're not without hope. Resurrection hope is on the other side. So, so we will address some hard things over the next few weeks, but not as people without hope. The first corporate lament that we are going to do, which will be this morning, is for our sin, over our own sin and the sin in the world. The Bible tells us that sin has affected everything. We often think about sin in terms of our own sin and the sins of others, but we don't often think about the problem of sin and what it's done to the world, what it's done to relationships, what it's done to society, and is the root cause and effect of every systemic evil. A day is coming when Jesus will come again and set everything right, but that time isn't right now. So until that day, we repent of our sin as followers of Jesus, and we lament the sin in the world. Like Israel, we sin and even do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, but we're not without hope. And we're not without grace when we bring it to Jesus. This acknowledges the brokenness and also keeps us from becoming hard-hearted by bringing our sin and the sins of others to the one who rescues 
and renews. So, so what we'll do is I will read uh, the majority of the lament and, and so you can kind of take it in, right? And if you agree, if your soul is tracking with the lament, you can respond with the refrain that will come after every paragraph. So I want to invite you to stand up. And I've asked you to write a personal lament. And now I want to invite you to participate in a corporate lament. We lament our comfort with sin and our indifference to its destruction. The pain it causes and the wedge it puts between us and you, O oh Lord. How long will we let its power hold us hostage and cause harm? We lament, O oh Lord. Hear our cry and forgive us. We lament our lack of mourning over sin, how it hurts us, those we love, and our neighbors. We know the path of sin leads to death, and yet we remain apathetic. How long will we struggle to take the grief of sin seriously? We lament, O Lord, hear our cry and forgive us. We lament our passivity to fight the battle of sin. We let it overcome us and invite the enemy in daily. When, O oh Lord, will you return and set us free from the war that wages deep inside us? We lament, O oh Lord, hear our cry and forgive us. Jesus, I, I thank you so much for being a God who invites us to bring the laments on our own hearts before you. Thank you that you are loving and you invite that. God, I thank you as well that you invite us as, as followers of Jesus in the world and as the church in the world. Lord, you invite us to interpret the times. You invite us to both wade into the brokenness, to observe it, to know that language, to understand it well but to also know the beauty of the gospel. Thank you for the rich privilege of being able to participate in corporate lament. Jesus, we love you. We seek you. We thank you. Amen.